This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Dare to Brew Different with new and exciting hop varieties from Hopsteiner's industry-leading breeding program. Varieties like Sultana, Lotus, Bravo, Altus, and Contessa are now available in lupulin pellet form, packing more flavor and aroma per pellet. Discover more at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. Nobody's doubting that mid-fermentation or early fermentation dry hopping results in different beers. But saying that you're dry hopping during early or mid-fermentation to boost biotransformation is a misnomer. This week on the show, why does dry hopping during active fermentation change sensory profiles? Is the black box of biotransformation really what drives those changes? Or is it something else entirely? Hi, my name is Leandro Miners. I'm the head brewer at Placebo and work with Matias and Birretegna. G'day, my name is Matias Cavana and uh, I'm the head brewer at Dos Dingos, uh, currently in BA and soon in Spain, but uh, also work with Leon at uh, Birotechnia Podcast in Spanish. You've still really got it out for biotransformation, don't you? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you like the term biotransformation about as much as Charlie Banforth and Luke Chadwick like the term hop creep. <laughs> well, everybody needs everybody needs to find an enemy. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Talk about your enemy a little bit there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So basically, this time around, when we did the the paper for the TQ last year, we'd done a lot of background research with Mati, trying to find everything that was out there, both in the beer world and the wine world, on biotransformation trying to understand it and from that we came out with like a lot of knowledge that we hadn't seen uh, uh, in anywhere documented in one single piece so we thought that it was kind of something that was missing out there i know normally reviews are not done by people who've just put their toe in the water in terms of tackling the subject but we had a broad understanding i thought it was worthwhile to somehow share that that we what we had been through Plus, plus may may add, Lynn, that um, it's also we we were 
I wouldn't want to say annoyed, but like we were constantly uh, sort of confronted by the fact that uh, even though the literature said one thing, we constantly heard in different forums and and places um, online, online or, or books and things, uh, sort of um, applications of the word biotransformation that we didn't believe uh, were correct or according to, to the academic reviews. Exactly. Yeah. So, so kind of like we wanted to share what we had gone through mentally of trying to understand this and saying, okay, this is what we know from the academic circle. This is what we can and can't say. And let's start being a bit more conscious because nobody's doubting that mid, mid fermentation or early fermentation dry hopping results in different beers. I think that is a given that we have all experienced, but we want it, we want to understand why that is. And if we magically assign that to biotransformation, I think we're missing out on the opportunity to truly understand the phenomenons that support that. All right. Very good. Okay. So th there's basically two buckets of hop related biotransformation reactions that brewers might care about. We've talked about them both on other episodes, but go ahead and set the stage for us. What do those buckets look like? We have two major classes. One is the biochemical modification of an aromatic compound into another aromatic compound that has obviously a different sensory profile. And then the release from a non-aromatic precursor of a, an aromatic compound, normally via hydrolysis. So those are the two big classes. Okay. What's awesome about this article that you wrote is that it's essentially Cliff's Notes, and I don't know if Cliff Notes is still a thing, so apologies to any millennials and Gen Zers out there who don't get the reference, but it's basically a high-level overview of the relevant research with commentary on the practical implications for the brewer. Take us back to the first publication on the topic of biotransformation, which is actually more than 20 years old now. Yeah, exactly. So basically, the first publication is the one by King from the 2000 and then reviewed in 2003, which talks about the biotransformation of monoterpene alcohols. There, he talks about the, the, re the reaction that a lot of people take from there. Of one of the important things is the ability of yeast to convert geraniol into beta-citronellol and also geraniol into linalol, nerol into linalol, and nerol into alpha-terpenol. Those are the reactions that he proves are happening. And this is something that obviously directly had an impact because linalol, for example, is one of the key markers that we take for Hopi especially before. Now we're kind of changing that definition, thinking of more tropical beers, but typically the hobby attribute of a beer was the was in the in the academic world it was the marker that was used was linalol. Okay. Let's let's get into this um the ninety nine uh study by Miller, the one that resulted in a, a patent and whatnot. So yeah. let's hear about that and um I guess maybe start with why why that was even a thing? Why, how, did they come, how did they stumble across that? Why, why were they looking into that? So basically what they were doing is they were working with um, extracts, with hop extracts. And what they noticed that when was that they were brewing with the extracts, they were not getting the exactly same flavors. And also that in the leftover of the extract, which they thought would not contain any, anything aromatic, when they brew with that, they were picking up 
notes of rhubarb. I think it was that they explained. So they started looking into this with uh, like the spent hops that were left over from the extract. And when they started looking at that, they noticed that they had glycosides in that, in that, in the remaining spent hops, and that they could be released by enzyme hydrolysis. So they just added enzymes and they noticed that they were getting components. So they said, okay, this could be another source of aroma impacts. And they went back and patented that. And, but as far as I know, Miller never applied that, or at least I, know, I could never found a reference of a beer being brewed using that technique. I'm sure they did. It just probably never got out into the wild, right? True. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so uh, you also mentioned a 2006 study by Coleman'sberger and our friend Martin Bindel from episode 214. What's important there? Well, basically, they they go back and they analyze a few different whole varieties, and they show that the glycosatide present. So they confirm what was found by the in the 1999 study by Miller, but the and they also say that they have different amounts of glycosides. So it's hop variety dependent, if you will. And then basically what they found is that they also go back and try to do extracts and they find that with supercritical CO2, they get none of those uh, precursors into the CO2 extract. So it's part of it goes away in the fraction that is being discarded, which confirmed the 99 finding. And again, they checked to see if they could hydrolyze those glycosides and found that that was the case. So again, but also all the time doing it with exogenous enzymes. So just adding enzymes to the hops. You call out a 2007 study out of Leuven as an important puzzle piece. Tell us about that. So basically what's important about Dana's study is that they analyzed the hydrolytic capacity of 36 Brugge strains and 30 Britannomyces strains, both including L, obviously for the, for, the, uh, for the beer strains, brewing strains, they look at both L's and lager strains, and they all find that few of the Saccharomyces species have true beta-glycosidase activity, which is what you would need to release the, the, from the precursor the aromatic compound. But they also found that they, they have some different gluconase activity that, that was strain-dependent. So what they, they, the, the last thing that they looked at is trying to see if by using yeasts you could actually release glucosides and they didn't prove, they, they showed that they didn't really have interesting results in that. It wasn't very encouraging. So it was kind of like left on the back burner. But it was quite interesting in the sense that everybody up to that point had been looking at, okay, if we add enzymes, we can release those products. And they for once tried to see, okay, what would happen if we actually do it with yeast? And it wasn't very encouraging. Okay, so talk about some of the practical implications that you wrote about in the article. So basically, from our point of view, basically you could break this down both from King's biotransformation and the release of aglycones. You have two things that are important in order to try to tackle the use of biotransformation as a word related to mid-fermentation or early fermentation dry hopping. So 
besides establishing that a, a, uh, a reaction does indeed happen, which is what the academia establishes, and looking at which, which strains do that, so knowing that you're working with a strain that, can act, that is actually capable of that, you also need to look at the impact that that release or that additional transformation would have sensory-wise, which is something that there are not many papers that talk about that, so like the, the impact that would cause. And also what is important is talking about the timing of the addition. So does it really, is it really happening because we are adding the hops early or mid-fermentation versus adding them at the end of fermentation or adding them during whirlpool? Are we losing those compounds if we add them in the, on the hot side? So basically, those are kind of like the questions we had in our head. And when we started looking at that, what we found is that, for example, for the biotransformation of monoterpene alcohols, those, most of the things that you get, the conversion from general to linalol or from nerol to linalol as well, the perception threshold for one compound or the other doesn't really change. It's not a big difference. So changing from one to the other is not going to make a, a hell of a difference in profile or in impact saying, okay, I can't smell anything and now I can. And the amount of what you need is quite high because we're talking about PPMs and normally those compounds in IPAs appear in the 20, 30, 40, 50 PPMs. So we're talking, okay, so we said, okay, if this is really making an impact, then we're going to need to have a few a, a big a change in the ppms and we're gonna have to know that the timing okay so so what does that 2014 uh, asbc paper by takoi teach us about the timing of hop additions so basically what we what that paper talks about is that the final concentration of beta tritonol which is the main reaction that people talk about when they talk about conversion of geranol to beta citronellol for biotransformation did not depend on the timing on the addition. So the final concentration of the linalol did not depend on when it was added. And the only change that he observed was if you added the yeasts after the, after the, sorry, the hops after the yeast growth phase, then you could increase the final concentration of general in the beer. So basically, this does not match the idea that adding hops early or mid-fermentation would somehow boost this biotransformation or you get more of that biotransformation happening i mean the the the, the common the common misnomer or knowledge or I, I would say more than knowledge uh word on the street um that that talks about if you add in the middle of the fermentation or early fermentation you would get more uh better citronellol in the in the finished product it's actually if you place yourself uh, at the end of fermentation. However, if you look at the, all the, the graphs that are in the in Takoi's paper, you would see that there's still bioconversion uh, happening in the packaged product, right? Except unless you uh, sort of um, filter, but like uh, fully filter the beer, right? With leaving zero uh, yeast in, in there. Or pasteurize it or something like that. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Some folks seem to think that biotransformation of monoterpene alcohols is really important for fruity, juicy, tropical beers. 
with a focus on beta citronella levels. It sounds like you don't buy that or at least think it's more complicated than that. Talk about some of the conflicting information out there that leads you down that path. So basically, on the one hand, we have Takoy's study, which is one of the few studies we have, and it's limited to only four hops, if I don't recall incorrectly. Then one study looking at the, a similar situation is the Halsbeck study. They use six different yeast strains and three hop varieties, and they reported a similar behavior for Geranol, so higher for dry hopping during maturation versus at the beginning of fermentation. They didn't look at mid-fermentation, but just like what Takoy observed, that if you do it post the yeast growth phase, you, you get more general left over in the final beer. But they also observed that they, they observed that they retain more beta citronellol when they dry hopping during maturation. They ended up with more both citron, beta citronellol and geraniol, right? Exactly. So this is kind of contradictory with Takois, but the thing is that the methodology that they're using is slightly different in that they're using bag hops and they're dry hopping directly in the bottle, which are not industry-wide practices. But I think the main thing, that, uh, well, a big difference is that they are not looking at packaged beer. And what Matty was saying a while back is that one of the things that really caught, caught our attention when looking at the Takoy paper is that he still finds the bioconversion happening during maturation. And in fact, that, this is something that has puzzled me even from when we finished writing this review. And it's something that we kept on looking at. Like after we did our, our experiments last year, we kept on trying to see how that, this was possible because everything was contradictory. So one of the things that is interesting about that paper from Helsbeck is that they end up concluding that one of the hypotheses that they say is like maybe the increase of beta citronellol is primarily due to the novel production by yeasts rather than reduction of gerinol. So maybe saying, okay, we're not saying that King's biotransformation from general to citronellol is not happening. But there are other things that might be happening in the, in the midst of this. Then comes Stacy Williams. She did an awesome presentation in the ASBC in 2019. And she showed that the timing of the addition did have an impact of, con of the concentration of beta citronellol when she was comparing dry hopping addition during act active fermentation versus towards the end. But that, that depended on both the E strain and the hop in use. So basically, it wasn't as early this works or early this strain it works. It's early this strain and that yeast, the, uh, this yeast strain and that hop, maybe there you get an increase if you do it early or you get an increase if you do it late. Also, also Stacy's work doesn't look into packaged product, right? She, it, exactly. It looks, it looks as far as... Uh, comparing the the um, the levels of the of the monoterpene alcohols uh, at uh, in the tank. So um, and as maturation before, as we've seen before uh, in uh, Takoy's work, these levels keep on changing during the the packed product. 
So you're comparing two product two hop editions at at different hop time, or like at, at, that had had been in contact with the, with a the liquid uh, different amounts of time. So if you look at it in maturation and you added it just at the end of fermentation, it might not had yet the time enough time to finish that conversion, right? Yeah, this is in fact something that has puzzled us because it, it makes extrapolating the results from each of the papers quite hard from each of the studies and also like you get all this conflict and everything but what is clear is that the picture is no way linear it's not like i'm adding this hope and this strain and i'm gonna get this if i do this added to that something that we bumped into after uh, uh, publishing this was we went back and started looking also at studies in wine which we did a little bit for this paper, but it was something that we didn't, we, we focused more on the information that was out there related to brewing. And there's a paper from 2011 by Fisher. And basically what they showed is that you get general into linalol, not beta citronellol, into linalol. So one of the biotransformations given by King, but they get that in an acidic medium after 20 days. So basically, this again challenges both King and it's also say, and it also starts to partially explain why Takoi is still getting this bioconversion in package. So <laughs> the picture is quite a lot more complicated than I do this because I'm going to get more linalol at the end or more beta citronellol at the end. Due to biotransformation. <laughs> Coming up. Those two things kind of like seem that you can ignore them, but they might be more important than we, we take them from granted. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. HS Sativa, brought to you by BSG Hop Solutions. Meet the latest in the BSG Hop Solutions portfolio, HS Sativa. Strong expressions of stone fruit, floral, and resinous pine flavors and aromas define this blend. 
crafted specifically for use in hazy IPAs and other hop-forward beers. HS Sativa is ideal for aroma, whirlpool, and dry hop additions to hazy and juicy IPAs, or for any other hoppy styles where a combination of citrus, tropical fruit, and pine aromatics are desired. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more, or call 1-800-374-2739. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Milwaukee meets by Zoom December 2nd. District Northern California hosts its fall meeting December 7th at Lagunitas Brewing Company in Petaluma. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets at Liney's Lodge in Chippewa Falls December 8th. And the annual District Ontario Technical Conference will be January 26th through the 28th just outside of Toronto. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets at Surly's Shide Hall, February 24th. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers, United We Brew. Back to the show. You wrote that the you wrote that the Tequoy Williams and Sharp studies. When you put each of these publications together, you end up at the conclusion that the sensory differences that result from mid fermentation dry hopping versus a late or post fermentation dry hop are not likely due to biotransformation of monoterpenes right yeah exactly for us like when you put all these together on the one hand you have the threshold that limits how much impact these could actually have in the final beer so even if they're happening how much of them happening makes a change in your perception of the year but then you also get that one of the studies by sharp where they go and they use they run a bunch of different yeast strains trying to see if they get this release of the aglycones and they find that they only get 10% conversion of the precursors. And also they look at different hop varieties and they show that there aren't that many precursors of monoterpene alcohols to begin with. And so when you put all this together, it doesn't really add up to explain the difference that we all agree there is with early or mid-fermentation dry hopping. So that's why we were trying to look for that, for an explanation for that in different ways. You want to talk about another way to look at this? Go back to episode 84, where we talked about the first strain that Berkeley Yeast engineered, the one that was published in the journal Nature. That strain is now commercially available. Anyone can order it right from their website. What does that strain do? 
it produces two monoterpenes, linalool and geraniol. Okay, so now you don't need to dry hop to load up a fermentation with monoterpenes. Go brew a batch of beer with that yeast, brew another batch with whatever biotransforming yeast strain you want to test, brew a third batch and co-ferment those two strains, then blend the first two batches together, compare that to the third batch, and let me know what happens. Cain. Sounds like a great experiment. Yes. Pretty, pretty keen. Yes. <laughs> okay. So if it's not biotransformation of monoterpenes, what is it? Well, looking at all of the, <laughs> the uh, literature out there, one of the things that we still haven't talked about is styles, which... But hold on. May, may, I, may I add something yeah. before? It's certainly not by a transformation of, of monoterpenes, but it's also not the, um, the biotransformation of, uh, of, uh, glycosides. Of, um, of glycosides either or not. The, yes, so the, the, release. the release of glycosides basically, because that also the only thing that adds is more monoterpenes, right? Uh, and at a very low, low rate as well. Exactly. And Sharp's study talks about that, the need of exogenous enzymes to really get that possibility. So the strains that we use, and they covered like 60 different strains, doesn't get you there. So basically... However, however the, the, the things that um, we do believe that and we haven't talked so far that, uh, that can get you there uh, and where the, the, the whole thing might be is with the style release and uh, also with bioesterification. Yeah, exactly. And then we, besides looking at potential biotransformations that could be making a difference, the other things that we generally all discard, but I don't think are, are, can be discarded that easily, is the removal of different compounds by CO2, so just by the scrubbing of CO2 during fermentation and the removal of compounds in the yeast cell walls when we dump the yeast. So those two things kind of like seem that you can ignore them, but they, are, they might be more important, especially the carryover in yeast cells. They might be more important than we, we take them from granted. I mean, there's this study from... 2013 by Kishimoto from Kirin, where they specifically talk about controlling the hop aroma of a beer by using yeast, like the yeast, and adding that post-fermentation to remove a lot of the herbaceous and green nature of the hop aroma basically by removing a lot of the most, more volatile and more hydrophobic mercy. So maybe it's not what we're adding, it's what we're getting rid of. Exactly. 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 Besides the styles that what Matty was mentioning, and we can get into that, these like more physical reactions are things that people take for granted and I think could, make, could be having more of an impact than we give them credit for. Which is interesting. Plus, plus we, we can't like extrapolate that the fact that like, let's say, even if we think that it was proven, to, which 
we can like the, when you read uh, Tech Hoy's paper, you can say not really um, that um, mid fermentation um, of uh, uh, dry hopping can um, can pr- can produce biotransformation of monotropines. You can't extrapolate that to thiols or to esters or to other types of biotransformation, right? And there's no there's no um, there's no literature literature or academic research that looks into um impact of uh of different uh timings of uh, bi- of dry hopping into um the biotransformation of of uh and of those other of those other types of biotransformation right so so uh even if we want to say okay we still want to believe that uh there is a biotransformation of uh of monotropine alcohols in mid in mid mid dry hop, mid fermentation dry hopping, you can't just say that also uh, will happen for thiols or or any other yeah compound. All right. So as as Matthew was mentioning, one of the things that we hadn't talked about haven't talked about yet is the release of bound thiols. So there we have a study from Dagen that shows that there are high levels of precursors from hops they as we know thiols have extremely low perception thresholds so here minute differences could be having a sensory impact which is a lot trickier to think of that that happening for monoterpene alcohols and where we we don't have enough information is the the rate of precursor release so the yields the yields we only have reports from Dagen where he see, he says that there's the release from 0.3 to 10% during fermentation, but that is in a presentation. There's no academic publication of that. Uh, there's been a paper that's been released after we published this by Chenault, where they talk about the difference in cis and glucosinated thiols and their recovery. And they talk about rates that go from 0.02 for glucothion precursors and higher, like about an order of magnitude, so like 0.45 for cystellated precursors because you have both types of precursors. And I think you talked about that in another episode on with the people from Omega. Yeah, just a few weeks ago, yeah. Yeah, so I think they were observing something similar that they were using mostly the cis precursors and not the glue precursors from thiols. So that makes quite a big of a difference. So here we have to kind of like say, okay, is this having an impact on biotransformation? Well, the jury's still out. The potential is there for thiols to really make a difference sensory-wise. But it's not clear that that difference will happen only if you use them during mid-fermentation or early fermentation versus late-fermentation dry hopping. And just anecdotally, I mean, from from my experience, especially having used a lot of the the GM thiol-releasing yeast strains, um, you know, thiols are incredibly volatile, right? And when um, when you produce a lot of thiols early in fermentation, you know, it's, it's absolutely decreased, you know, 
after that active fermentation with all that scrubbing, I mean, just just from a sensory standpoint, it absolutely decreases. But like you talked about earlier with um, uh, with beta citronella and whatnot, um, sometimes that release uh, can continue all the way into the package. And so, um, you know, I, I I've seen beers that I've done with lots of thiols, you know, um, produce a lot during fermentation, but then decline. Um, you know, as the fermentation progresses, but then increase again in maturation. Yeah, totally. I mean, it would make sense that you kind of think it the, uh, the other way. I want to keep most of these in, but since most of the hops, what they have shown is that there are a lot more precursors than actual three free styles, maybe losing the free ones during fermentation or what you're freeing is made up by the fact that you're releasing more. So it is a complicated picture. Hopefully somebody with access to the, to the technology to be able to measure tiles, which is uh, complicated. Which is Lauren Degon. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it yeah. goes into looking at what the, if mid-fermentation or early fermentation, if timing makes a difference. That'd be really interesting to understand. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, we think of freshness as being important when producing tropical flavors, but there's some evidence that aged hops might be a better fit. Talk about that. Well, with aged hops, one of the things that we we that the literature talks about is the fact that you're having some some decomposition and you're getting some precursors that can then be stirified and have a sensory impact. So that is something that has been going on for a while now. And with people like Reyes looking at the importance of sterification in order to explain some of the flavor we get from mid-fermentation or early fermentation dry hopping, it could very well be that using a part partially aged hops or a part in, of aged hops for these specific biotransformations could be a boost in certain levels. But again, we have to understand a lot more of the, the amount of precursors there and also n- not only if timing makes a difference, but if what we are able going to be able to extract, not extract, but bioconvert in addition is more than something that we m- can just make up by adding a little bit more of, of hops. So it's kind of tricky to, to ponder that. And I think like this is certainly something that uh, a lot of brewers I know and including myself and Leon, really excited to see if we could use some old hops with high in isovaleric acid um, to, to increase this esterification. However, I think you also need to be brave to try that at a, at a uh, commercial scale <laughs> because you are, you are risking to, to check out away a, a, a whole batch of products. So that's, uh, that's why I, I reckon there's uh, a lot of brewers that are like really keen for this to be proven by someone else, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think what what the interesting about thing about age hops and sterification is that what we're going to start understanding in that front is going to be able to help explain more of what we see in sour beers. I think that reaction is going to be a lot, m- would explain a lot more 
about the profile of H of lambic beers, which are brewed with H hops, rather than this turning into a technique to take advantage of when brewing an IPA. Okay, so where does all this leave us? What's what's next? <laughs> so, for me, trying to understand how much ideally I would like to do some experiments to try to understand a bit more the impact that yeast can be having on stripping out volatiles and seeing if that helps explain where we are. And also CO2 scrubbing, but I think the, I, my, my, my money is on yeast. And my, my take on this is that, I mean, keep on trying different timings of uh, hop additions uh, and so on and so forth. However, not uh, assuming that because you got a different flavor profile, uh, it's due to the biotransformation of, um, of those hops due to an early addition or something like that, right? For Matty and I, considering what we know, the current evidence of the literature, calling, saying that you're dry hopping during early or mid-fermentation to boost biotransformation is a misnomer. Uh, we are not sure that biotransformation is really happening or if it could have an impact. The literature does not support that idea. That is not to say that it doesn't make a change when you are, in fact, but doing um, earlier mid-fermentation dry hopping. That is having an impact. But as we discussed during this podcast, the biotransformation of monoterpene alcohols doesn't seem to have a, it shouldn't have a marked impact. The timing of that addition doesn't have a true impact on, on its dependent. It's not truly dependent on that, the timing to be able to say, okay, if I'm doing this mid or early, that is going to make a real change instead of if I do it late in the fermentation or post-fermentation. Bound thiols and their release are a better candidate to explain what we get when we're earlier mid-fermentation dry hopping. But as we said, the jury's still out because we don't know the effect that timing could have. And as John pointed out, re scrubbing by CO2 could really have an impact on a volatile on tiles as they're very, very volatile. So the evidence here is tricky. Sterifications, transit sterification and condensation reactions are shown to have an impact, but it's very early days on that research to, to, to be able to understand if they're having a contribution and how big that contribution actually is. And then what we do have are the physical effects of so CO2 scrubbing and removal with yeast cells, which is proven to have an impact. How much of that, how much of that is truly happening is something that we still need to study. And it's truly interesting to see if people grab that and start taking it forward and understanding the contribution that is just simply made by those more physical reactions, especially because what, what the, the few works on yeast carry over in yeast cells and yeast cell walls is related to very volatile, uh, very volatile compounds, which turn normally out to be the more green and herbal ones, which are the ones we normally remove when we do early fermentation because we say, okay, I get more of the tropical character. And it just might be an equation that you're removing more, not getting actual more, and you're removing more of those that are unwanted. So that still needs analysis, and it could be really, really interesting to see what's, what's happening there. 
Okay, so the moral of the story is if we don't understand it, call it biotransformation, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Please don't call it biotransformation if we don't understand it. That was Leandro Miners and Maddie Cavana here on the Master Brewers podcast. Check the show notes for a direct link to their article in the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly. And if you're a Spanish speaker, check out their podcast, Biratechnia. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.